0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, the book of Romans, chapter 4. As we saw to begin Romans chapter 4 last week, Paul is essentially offering a midrash, that's kind of an interpretive discussion, of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, to bolster his case that the gospel saves both Jews and Gentiles under exactly the same terms. This Genesis passage tells the story of Abraham being reckoned by God to be righteous on account of his trust. But there is yet another aspect that helps us to understand where Paul was going with his line of thought. So let's take a little bit of a detour to discuss something that although fundamental to our faith is not necessarily easy to grasp. Now we'll begin it this way. While so far Paul has asserted that the Father will righteous people, he will justify people on account of trust in Yeshua as Lord and Messiah he really has not proved this to be the case according to scripture meaning Old Testament scripture since there was no New Testament to refer to the core of Paul's argument is that people, Jews and Gentiles can only be righteous by an abiding trust in Yeshua's deed of going to the cross and not by our own works and deeds of following the law of Moses. But most importantly, he says, this applies to both Gentiles and Jews. Now this line of argument would have put him at loggerheads with the Jews living in Rome, whether they were believing or non-believing Jews. Even more on the surface, and especially to Gentiles who didn't understand such nuances, it put him in a head-on collision with James, brother of Yeshua, who was the supreme leader of the early church. James operated from his headquarters in Jerusalem, and from there he led the believing Jews of the Holy Land while Paul worked throughout Asia leading the believing Jews of the Diaspora as well as the believing Gentiles. Now in the New Testament book that's named after him James focused his writings as much on the works of a believer as he did on trust in Messiah. Martin Luther noticed this And he was so disapproving of what James had to say that he wanted the book of James removed from the New Testament canon because Luther found no place in the gospel for the role of deeds. Therefore, he saw the book of James as contradictory to Paul's writings, and therefore is also contradictory to Luther's own doctrine of faith and faith alone as the means to salvation. Part of Luther's stance stemmed from the fact that he was basically anti-Semitic, and thus the book of James was a little bit too Jewish for his liking. Now we're going to spend just a short time looking at what James said that particularly upset Luther because it, to, to him it ran completely counter to what we've been reading that Paul had to say in the book of Romans and therefore also it ran counter to Luther's doctrine of grace. But it also highlights for us the conundrum that has always existed within the Christian and Messianic faith even from Paul's day as we're going to see about finding this proper balance between the roles of trust versus works. Now as I read this to you notice it's almost as though James is responding directly to Paul's midrash about Abraham In Romans chapter 4, as James also refers to Genesis 15, 6. And he supplies his own reasoning for God reckoning Abraham as righteous. If you want to go there, you can go to James chapter 2, towards the back of your Bible. Verses we're going to look at verses 14 through 26. I'll read them to you. Verses 14 through 26, James chapter 2. Here's what it says. Now what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it, is such a faith able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister who is without clothes and daily food and somebody says to him, Shalom, keep warm and healthy, and without giving him what he needs, what good does it do? Thus faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, well you have uh, you have faith, I have actions. Well show me this faith of yours without the actions and I'll show you my faith by my actions. You believe God is one, good for you. The demons believe it too the thought makes them shudder with fear. Oh, but foolish fellow, do you want to be shown that such faith apart from actions is barren? Wasn't Avraham Avenue Abraham our father, declared righteous because of actions when he offered up his son Yitzhak on the altar? You see, that his faith worked with his actions. By the actions, the faith was made complete. And the passage of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, was fulfilled which says, Avraham had faith in God and it was credited to his account as righteousness. He was even called God's friend. You see that a person is declared righteous because of actions and not just because of faith alone. Likewise, wasn't Rahab, the prostitute, also declared righteous because of actions? when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another route. Indeed, just as the body without a spirit is dead, so too faith without actions is dead. Hmm. So while Paul says in Romans 3.24, by God's grace without earning it, All are granted the status of being considered righteous before him through the act redeeming us from our enslavement to sin that was accomplished by the Messiah, Yeshua. But we find James say, Well, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such a faith able to save him? Faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. See, on face value... It sounds as though these two statements are at odds with one another. Luther found it that way. But in reality, there is no fundamental contradiction between Paul and James. Rather, what they're doing is they're expressing two sides of the same coin. Essentially, they are approaching the same matter, the balance of faith and works as expected by the gospel of Christ, from different angles. Paul, due to who he was addressing, the Romans, and what he was trying to prove, well, he puts more emphasis on how one initially attains righteousness. While James, due to who he was addressing, he was addressing the Holy Land Jews, and what he was trying to prove, he puts more emphasis on how one maintains the righteousness that they've received. Let me repeat it. Paul is dealing with believing Diaspora Jews and Gentiles. James is dealing with almost exclusively believing Jews in the Holy Land. These are very different cultures with equally different religious concerns. Now, What is especially challenging, however, is that James says Abraham was righteous on account of his deeds. Says putting his son Isaac on the altar is example. What while Paul says Abraham is righteous on account of his trust. It's my opinion that we are dealing mostly with semantics. And the fact that the organic unity between the law and the gospel can be quite difficult to pull apart and then discuss each as separate things. But when we do, it's even more difficult than to try to determine which is more important than the other. The faith? The faith of, that James is speaking of, or deeds and actions in terms of physical, tangible obedience to the various regulations of the Law of Moses? You see, is speaking of the spirit that undergirds the law of Moses and the goal that the law strives for. Thus, the righteousness is attained by God's grace. See the seeming distance between the law and trust, if not the uncrossable gulf that Christianity's made it. It's highlighted by the fact that a half-century after Paul's and James's era, the Jews continued on this route of deeming obedience to the law as preeminent, while Gentile Christians decided trust was preeminent. The debate became so polarizing that Jews determined that righteousness was attained and maintained solely obedience to the law, while Gentile Christians determined that righteousness was attained and maintained solely from trust, a classic case of both sides throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Neither of these determinations mirrors actual scriptural scriptural truth, but rather they express man-made doctrines prejudices, cultural differences, and political considerations. In reality, Paul says that while God righteouses us according to our trust, the law remains alive and well, and that it goes without saying that properly doing the provisions of the laws, deeds and works, remains paramount in the life of a believer. Back in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we heard this, but by your stubbornness, by your unrepentant heart, you are storing up anger for yourself on the day of anger when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. revealed, for he will pay back each one according to his deeds. According to his deeds. Not according to his measure of trust. Conversely, James says that if you indeed have actually been righteous by God, then your faith will surely show up in your deeds. If your deeds don't reflect the faith you claim you have, then you're simply deceiving yourself about your faith. was It starts in, in verse 21, chapter 2 of James. Wasn't Avraham Avinu Abraham, our father, declared righteous because of actions when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith worked with his actions. By the actions, the faith was made complete. So now back to focusing on Paul in Romans chapter 4. In verses 4 and 5, Paul makes it abundantly clear that God accepts those who sin Jews and Gentiles without requiring them first to prove their trust in Him either through deeds of kindness or or through doing the commandments of the law let me say it this way it is not through trust plus deeds that one is initially righteous by God that one is saved by God. However, it certainly is that once one puts their trust in God and God righteouses them, saves them despite his or her deeds then the expected result is to express that trust by means of being obedient to Him through our works and deeds as defined by the law. That's what we've been hearing from both James and Paul. Or perhaps more succinctly, we need to do those works and deeds as defined by the spirit of the law. First trust, then deeds. This order can never be reversed. Nor can we only have trust or deeds as a believer. And in this, James and Paul are in full agreement. They just express it a little differently because they come at it from two different angles. You know, it helps us to understand what Paul was dealing with in his letter to the Romans when we learn <clears throat> that the Jews of his day absolutely would not have seen obtaining righteousness as a possibility without first faithfully doing the works of the law. He was also dealing with a Jewish society both in the Diaspora and in the Holy Land who did not distinguish any significant difference between the law of Moses and tradition, halakha. So even using the term the law was full of ambiguity. It required some careful explanation. One of the main thrusts of Paul's argument is that what he sees as, is, is, is what he sees as a misinterpretation of Genesis fifteen six by his fellow Jews. He sees them making a big mistake and how they interpret Genesis 15-6. That's why this whole thing is a a midrash on that subject, on that verse. That is, when it is said that Abraham believed God and God reckoned it as his righteousness, Paul says that this is speaking of Abraham's faith and not of his faithfulness. Get your ears good and sharp, for what I'm going to tell you. What's the difference between faith and faithfulness the issue between the meaning of faith and faithfulness has become especially murky in the modern west because of the way we commonly use those words in our day faith can mean a particular religion hey, what faith do you belong to? You can even refer to an ideology what do you have faith in? it can mean a reasonable expectation it can mean a hope for something it can mean even a wish for something faithfulness means loyalty to a person usually a marriage partner or an organization involving either sincere intentions or an in actuality but biblically Biblically speaking, faith is a term that speaks of a person's trust and confident belief even without any tangible proof to back it up. That's biblical faith. It speaks of a mindset that usually involves a spiritual condition. Faith and trust in the Bible. Are so closely tied together there that they're virtually synonymous. On the other hand, biblical faithfulness speaks of a person's loyalty to a covenant. Loyalty to a covenant. In the case of the Jews, it was loyalty to the divine covenants of Abraham and Moses. Put another way, faithfulness is far more than a mindset, hope, or intention. Faithfulness is the actual performance of the terms of a covenant agreement. Faithfulness, biblically, is expressed in physical actions. Faithfulness is accomplished through works and deeds. Biblically, by the way, that definition of faithfulness applies to both God and man. So in applying this understanding to our issue of James versus Paul, Paul is approaching the gospel more in terms of faith James is approaching the gospel more in terms of faithfulness. Paul's approach is all about mindset. James' approach is all about actions. And yet in living reality, the faith and faithfulness of a true believer are to operate together as one. The actual existence of of a true saving faith in a believer will always be evident through our faithfulness and the active faithfulness of a believer is the necessary tangible proof of our true saving faith as it pertains to the gospel trust or faith and law Now, they can be separated in theory in order that we can discuss each of them. But in reality, they are so tightly interwoven that they they work together, they operate together as one complex entity. It's the same challenge that we face with trying to discuss the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, they can be separated in theory in order that we can discuss each of them, but in reality they are so fused together as one complex entity. God is Ahad. God is One, we are told. Now I know this concept can be a little bit difficult to think about, but I've spent so much time with it because it's fundamental to the understanding of the core nature of our faith and how we gain and how we maintain membership in our faith. So I'll use an example that I used many years ago to illustrate it. I hope it helps a little bit. I'll say up front, it's not a precise illustration but I think it's close enough to help communicate the concept. Becky is my wife but she is also mother in addition, she's grandmother. Further, she's a friend to many, and she is a child of God. She's all those things. I See, I can speak of the separate and the various roles and elements of Becky. My wife, Becky, my, the mother, Becky, the grandmother, Becky, the friend, Becky, the child of God. I can't even emphasize one of them over the others, or give more weight to one over the others and she can climb into and out of those roles as circumstance dictates but that is only theoretical because at the same time I can't physically separate Becky into those several parts and identify one part of her as a wife another part of her as a mother and and so on and so forth why is that? because Becky is echad Becky's one God is a God. God is one. God makes it clear He's one, and that humans are similar. We are made, we're made in His image. Humans are similar, and James and Paul show us that within the gospel, law and trust, law and trust operate that same way. They are one. All right, and I hope that helps you a little bit let's continue on now with Romans chapter 4 open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 we're going to start at verse 9 Romans chapter 4 verse 9 if you have a complete Jewish Bible it's page 1406 we're going to start at verse 9 go to the end Now, is this blessing for the circumcised only, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that Abraham's trust was credited to his account as righteousness, but what state was he in when it was credited? Circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In fact, he received circumcision as a sign as a seal of the righteousness he had been credited with on the ground of the trust he had while he was still uncircumcised. And this happened so that he could be the father of every uncircumcised person who trusts and thus has righteous credited to him. And at the same time, be the father of every circumcised person who not only has had a brit milah, a circumcision ceremony, but also follows in the footsteps of the trust which Avraham Avenue had when he was still uncircumcised. For the promise to Avraham and his seed that he would inherit the world did not come through legalism, but through the righteousness that, trusts produce, that trust produces. For if the heirs are produced by legalism, then trust's pointless. The promise is worthless for what law brings is punishment but where there's no law there's no violation. Now the reason the promise is based on trusting is so that it may come as God's free gift. A promise. A promise that can be relied on by all the seed. Not only those who live within the framework of the Torah but also those with the kind of trust Avraham had. Avraham Avanu Abraham, our father, for all of us. This accords with the Tanakh, the Old Testament, where it says, I have appointed you to be a father to many nations. Abraham is our father in God's sight because he trusted God as the one who gives life to the dead and he calls non-existent things into existence. For he was past hope. Yet in hope he trusted that he would indeed become a father to many nations, in keeping with what he had been told, so many will your seed be. His trust did not waver when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered that Sarah's womb was dead too. He did not, by lack of trust, decide against God's promises. On the contrary, by trust, he was given power as he gave glory to God. For he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he could also accomplish. That is why it was credited to his account as righteousness. But the words it was credited to his account were not written for him only, they were written for us who will certainly have our account credited to, because we have trusted in him who raised Yeshua our Lord from the dead. Yeshua, who was delivered over to death because of our offenses raised to life in order to make us righteous. Well, there is a theology feast for you. Beginning with verse 11, Paul is again using the term circumcised to identify Jews, uncircumcised to identify Gentiles. This is because of the preeminent place that the ritual of male circumcision held in Judaism at that time. It was akin to a person citing the Pledge of Allegiance to their particular flag and nation. Paul is saying that while having a circumcision is on the one hand obedience to both the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants on the other hand, what it really has come to signify in his present day is more a symbol of national allegiance to Israel and the national religion of Israel, which is Judaism. However, Originally, Abraham's circumcision was intended as an outward sign and an authentication of his inner trust in God as his heavenly king. Therefore, if a person has trust in God but does not have a circumcision, Paul speaking of Gentiles, the lack of this outward authentication does not revoke their righteousness given to him by God because of his trust. And the proof of this is, he says, that Father Abraham was reckoned with righteousness 29 years before he was ever circumcised. Therefore, Abraham is legitimately the father of the uncircumcised who trust God, as well as the circumcised who trust God. Ladies and gentlemen, this reality is why this ministry is called Seed of Abraham. It is not to say that we are a congregation consisting only of Jews that are Abraham's physical seed, or only of Gentiles that are Abraham's spiritual seed. It is an acknowledgement that Abraham is as much the father of Gentiles who have trust in the God of Israel through his son Yeshua as he is the Jews' father. The difference is that Jews have a God-given right to also see Abraham as their source of citizenship to earthly Israel. While Gentile believers do not have any such national rights, our rights are entirely spiritual in nature. Paul continues with impeccable logical reasoning for his conclusion in verse 13 by saying that scripture states Abraham would inherit the world. But this inheritance would not come through legalism, that is, through Abraham's obedience to to laws but rather through the righteousness that is reckoned to him because of the trust he has in God that is logical because the law did not exist in Abraham's time and it wouldn't exist for another six centuries but even more says Paul If it's obedience to the law that produces a saving righteousness then it can't also be that a saving righteousness is produced by trusting. If it was only by obedience to the law that the promise to Abraham to inherit the world comes about then this isn't any promise at all. But rather it would have required Abraham and his descendants to work for it. So Paul is challenging, you see, a fundamental principle of Second Temple Judaism. In fact, he is essentially redefining Abraham's covenant in relation to how Judaism defined it in Paul's era. Big task. He is saying that the inheritance promised in the covenant does not come by doing the law, but rather through the righteousness that comes by trust. Now let's be clear. Paul is not saying that maintenance of the divine covenant and the relationship between God and man that it produces is no longer needed. He is saying that the maintenance fundamentally requires a foundation of saving righteousness. And the only way that can happen is through trust. Therefore, while believers should do the law, it's only effectual if doing the law is done on the basis of first having trust in God. Put another way, faith first, faithfulness second. Verse 15 now, take a look at that. Verse 15 seems to throw us a major league curveball. In fact, many Bible scholars feel a little bit bewildered why this statement's even here. Is it meant to be a conclusion or a summation of what Paul's just said? Is it a straggler? that somehow just fell into this passage centuries ago by means of a copyist error. Opinions vary. But first, let me say that the complete Jewish Bible translation where it says, for, the, for what the law brings is punishment is not a good one. It gives us a wrong idea. And it doesn't allow us to make an intended connection. It is much more literal according to the Greek and correct and it agrees with just about all other English versions to have it read for what the law brings is wrath wrath using the word wrath is important because what Paul is doing is reminding his readers, readers of the other major reason that both Jews and Gentiles must have trust in order to be given righteousness it is that all humans are liable to God's wrath. Whether they're humans who follow the law or humans who don't have the law. Gentiles. But since Paul is in this section directly addressing Jews, then he is speaking from their point of view. And that view, by its nature, is a view involving the law. Paul says that despite what Judaism thinks and Judaism thinks that the law produces righteousness in fact, what the law produces, he says is not righteousness, but wrath because by the law we learn what sin is that's the purpose of it, in Paul's view and when we break the law, we sin and because of our highly developed evil inclinations it's the fate of all mankind to embrace sinning and how much more responsible then are people who have God's laws and commandments the Torah, the law but violate them than people who do not know his laws and commands but do have the natural law and violate it see that was an earlier premise couple chapters ago that Paul established. Thus what the law cannot do is precisely what trust alone can do. It can provide a saving righteousness. Now sadly, this verse 15 is another one that is regularly used way out of context to say that for Christians this means the law is dead and gone. Are even more off the mark that Paul is saying that the best thing for Christians to do is to stay away from the law because where there is no law, there's no violation. That is, if we just deliberately shun the law, we can avoid sinning. Isn't that cool? So, where in America, jurisprudence, we have the saying that ignorance of the law is no excuse. In the New Testament, we have Paul saying that ignorance of the law of Moses is not only a good and acceptable way to excuse our sins, he advises that we should strive to know nothing about the law. I mean, to me, that's near to blasphemy to think that way. Well, in verse 16. Paul indeed does sum up what he has said thus far in this chapter. And it ends with Paul making a statement that would have enraged most Jews. It is that Paul's explanation of Abraham receiving his righteousness by trust alone is why God made the promise to him that he would be the father of all nations. Therefore, Abraham is the father for all of us, meaning all believers, Jew and Gentile. Now, to the Jews hearing this, Paul just gave away their most revered Jewish patriarch. And he gave Abraham away to their enemies, to the Gentiles. However, what Paul really did was to redefine what the seed of Abraham consists of. Paul says it consists of all believers in Yeshua. Jew and Gentile. In verse 17, to back this up, Paul even quotes Genesis 17.5 to prove his case. There he says, Your name will no longer be Avram, exalted father, but your name will be Avraham, father of many, because I have made you the father of many nations. Now, interestingly, over time, Jews made peace with his idea of Gentiles who choose the God of Abraham as their God as also becoming seed of Abraham. However, this piece had a caveat. Maimonides, also known as the Rambam in Judaism, one of the greatest Jewish sages of all time, lived in the 13th century AD, and he said this as concerns Gentiles. You ask me if you are permitted to say in the prayers, he's talking to a Gentile, God of our fathers, and you worked miracles for our fathers. Yes, you may say your blessing in prayer in the same way as every born Jew. This is because Abraham, knew, Abraham our father revealed the true faith and the unity of God. He rejected idol worship and brought many children under the wings of the Shekinah. Ever since then, whoever adopts Judaism and confesses the unity of the divine name as prescribed in the Torah is counted among the disciples of Avraham Avenu, Abraham our father, peace unto him. Thus, Avraham Avinu is the father of his pious posterity who keep his ways. And he is the father of his disciples and of all proselytes who adopt Judaism. So from Maimonides' perspective, that caveat I was telling you about for a Gentile believer being allowed to see himself or herself as a seed of Abraham was official conversion to Judaism. Unfortunately, we see some of Rambam's thinking alive and well within the Hebrew roots and Messianic movements. And I want to say as firmly as I can that this is entirely wrong-minded. Paul makes it clear The Gentiles become a seed of Abraham because of our trust in God. Through our trust in God's Son, Yeshua, and this involves no conversion whatsoever. But the same is true for Jews who believe in Yeshua. No conversion, no renouncing their Jewishness is required. Just trust. Now I want to take a moment to emphasize something I said earlier. Paul explicitly makes Abraham the father of Gentile Christians as well as Jews. Now I want you to think upon that for a minute. What role has Christianity given Abraham in our faith? Practically none. None he is mostly the subject of Sunday school stories for children. But if Abraham is the father of all who trust in God as Paul says he is, and Paul has spent considerable pen and ink on this subject of Abraham, and if Paul is right that since Abraham is the common father of Jews and Gentiles in a spiritual sense, then how can the church assign Abraham to Judaism but not to Christianity? How can the church make Abraham as applicable only to the Old Testament and largely irrelevant to the New Testament? How can the church say that the covenant of Abraham has been abolished and replaced by the so-called New Covenant in Christ. For right here, Paul explains that Gentile believers who trust in God through Yeshua are fulfilling the most ancient of covenants, the, the Abrahamic Covenant. I mean, if you want to demonstrate to others the fallacy of saying that the Old Testament is obsolete for believers, or that the covenants of old Abrahams and Moses' are dead and gone and nailed to the cross. Just refer them to Romans chapters 3 and 4 when by Paul's own words Gentiles are directly attached to and called what? Seed of Abraham. And point out how Gentiles don't replace Jews rather we're just added to the mix. Paul will explain this addition of Gentiles added to the mix more thoroughly in Romans chapter 11. This is where we first hear this term grafted in. Well, In the last part of verse 17 Paul highlights two of God's primary attributes. He gives life to the dead And he is the creator of all things. And the point is that while Abraham had little familiarity with God at first, he quickly recognized these two important, although basic aspects of God's nature. I'm going to use this opportunity to emphasize we can only know God in two ways. His name and his attributes. Thus, if any religion such as Islam, claims that the Judeo-Christian God is the same as their God, that is easily refutable because the Muslim God has a different name and he has different attributes than the God of Abraham. It is wrong for a believer even if out of some misplaced sense of compassion to ever allow a Muslim to claim that we all worship the same God. We do not. And you know something? If we allow Him to think that way, what incentive is there for Him to seek the true God? If He thinks He's already got it right, and the Christian say, oh yeah, you got it right, no problem. What's His incentive to ever seek the true God? See, we become complicit... When we do that, in condemning that person to hell. Here, Paul reminds his readers Abraham was very old when he was finally given a son. Now, a son was necessary from a practical viewpoint if he was going to be a father to many nations. If Abraham had no sons, then his line would have ended with his death, and God's promise could not have been fulfilled. Abraham fully understood that he was too old, almost a hundred years old, to father children, but his wife Sarah, was also too old to bear children. So what hope was there that God's promise could possibly be fulfilled? Paul describes Abraham as as good as dead. Dead men don't produce offspring. Yet Abraham, so very aware of his impossible situation, didn't give up hope. He trusted that God would somehow give Abraham and Sarah children despite their dead reproductive systems. This trust, we're told, is why he was credited with righteousness. I think it's entirely fair. In fact, it's only logical To call Abraham's belief that he would produce offspring regardless of his and Sarah's being past childbearing age a deed, a work. Even though the intention was misplaced, that he took Sarah's handmaiden and slept with her believing that his infertility would become fertility is of course putting faith to action. Sadly, that action was wrong because his faith wasn't pure or because his understanding of God was a little bit off the mark. But when we hear from Paul that Abraham never lacked trust, see, that doesn't mean he didn't have moments of doubt. Rather, it means he did not enter into a deep-seated and permanent mode of distrust, essentially renouncing the trust that initially initially brought Him righteousness. See, this is something that all believers need to pay attention to. Our trust, our faith is not perfect. And it is not steady. Oh, I wish it was. We will have our moments of doubt from which we can recover. It is falling into that permanent mode whereby we deeply, sincerely, no longer trust that's when we're in grave danger. Now as for Abraham, later after it turned out that God supernaturally restored Abraham's fertility as evidenced and Hagar becoming pregnant by Abraham, God giving life from the dead... God also restored Sarah's dead womb. And with that belief firmly in his mind, Abraham slept with Sarah and she became pregnant by Abraham and the result was the true son of promise, Isaac, Itzak. Well, having given us the example of Abraham, in verse 23, Paul now explains that the reason for God righteousing Abraham was not meant only for him, This was not a one-off event meant only for a special patriarch. Rather, the recording of this event and the written accounting for how righteousness is obtained is meant to inform everyone about it. I maintain that the story of Abraham, as we find in the Old Testament, is the earliest recorded form of the Gospel fact I think that Paul's entire theology is based around his conviction that the Old Testament throughout its many books speaks directly to the matter of the gospel. After all what else did he have to refer to than the Old Testament? Finally in the last few words of chapter 4 just give me one more minute of your time In the last few words of chapter 4, Paul connects and compares Yeshua to Abraham. Now notice how Paul turns the phrase, especially since the point is to compare Yeshua to Abraham, such that we are to trust, please hear me, we are to trust in the one who raised Yeshua from the dead. Just as Abraham trusted in the same one who has the power to raise from the dead. That is, Paul is indicating we should trust the Father. It is by the Father's power that Yeshua was raised. Yeshua did not raise himself. It is by the Father's power that people are righteous, are justified. However, also trust in Yeshua's perfect faithfulness what did we find out faithfulness was? actions and deeds because Yeshua's deeds were 100% without sin. It's on account of Yeshua's perfect faithfulness that he can be our atonement for sin which is the prere- prerequisite for our being righteous by his father. It's how we become seed of Abraham. And we'll begin Romans chapter 5 next week.